Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. It is good to gather with you here as we come together and just yeah, celebrate the, the birth of our Savior together. We're, we're thankful we're here. You're here with us. And it's just a chance to gather together. So this, this morning can be a little bit different, a little bit. We don't have a live worship team. We're going to sing um, with pre-recorded videos on the screen, but we can still sing praising God for all that He's done for us. So today, and then we'll get to the sermon, but then it'll be fairly, a little bit shorter than normal. And I just encourage you to use this time to just enjoy another fellowship following the service and to yeah, just delight together in the good news that is the birth of our Savior. So with that in mind, would you stand if you're able and we'll sing together.
be seated. If you're, if you're new, don't know who I am, my name is Tim, I'm the senior pastor here, and we, as I said a minute ago, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We were talking a couple months ago about like, the fact that Christmas falls on a Sunday this year, like, there's the discussion about, like, whether we gather in different churches and make different choices, but like, for me, it's just a chance to gather together on Sunday, regardless of what's going on in the world, and especially right, on the birth of our Savior. I think it's a precious time, so I'm glad that each of you are here with us. Like, if you're not judging people aren't here, I know like, people have family stuff going on or whatever else, but you all are my favorites like, if you're here. And so, again, we're just glad that you're here with us. We hope this morning you're blessed by being reminded and refreshed in the fact that our Savior has come to be with us. And so would you, you pray with me as we set our minds on that. Father, we do just thank you for this chance to, to gather and to come together as your people in this place to celebrate the birth of your Son. Thank you for a reason together that Jesus came, he died for us, he redeemed us, and he made us each his children. He encouraged us to gather together, to wor- gather together, to worship together. We're thankful for the chance to do that, especially on this day where we celebrate are coming to us at the first Christmas. Father, I just pray that our hearts this morning would marvel at all that you've done for us. Even though each of us here have probably heard the Christmas story countless times, would, would it hit us in fresh and new ways today? Would we delight your goodness and your love for us in deeper ways this morning. Would we be moved to to glorify you, to praise you for all that you've done for us? Would we enjoy the fellowship with one another we gather together here? Praise on Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand again as we continue to sing.
Father, we are so thankful that the long-expected King did indeed come. We can celebrate Him this morning. Let our heart be inclined to do that as we come to Your Word together. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. So I know, I know that at Christmas I should be all cheery. I shouldn't try to ruffle any feathers. But I feel the need to make a statement that may upset some of you. And that statement is this. The ending of the movie Wizard of Oz is garbage. <laughs> That's it. Like, it's just nonsensical hogwash. Like, so that, that movie has, has two main problems. Right? The two main problems in the movie. The first big problem in the movie is that there's the Wicked Witch of the West being wicked. Right? And then there's the fact that Dorothy needs to get home. Right? Those are the two big movies that, uh, two big problems that that movie sets up. A Wicked Witch and Dorothy needing to get home. And the way those two problems are resolved are just nonsense. Like first you have the Wicked Witch who gets taken care of when, when Dorothy, who's trying to put out the scarecrow who's on fire, accidentally throws and splashes some water on the Wicked Witch, and that causes the Wicked Witch to melt. Which, never mind the fact that that makes no sense, right? Like, never mind the fact that the movie never explains why water makes the witch melt in the first place. Even if we accept, we just like take for granted, like, okay, that's the witch's weakness. The fact that water makes her melt means, A... She's never taken a shower in her life, and yet people aren't repulsed by her odor. She's never washed her hands, and yet she hasn't died of some infectious disease. And she's never apparently been accidentally splashed by water before ever in her life. I get splashed by water like three or four times a day. Granted, I have little kids, but still, like, how does she never have that happen? All right, so that's already nonsense, right? And then we get to the fact that, that Dorothy needs to get home to Kansas. That's kind of her main quest, all movie, right? to get home. That so she wakes up in this unknown land, and all she wants to do is get home. And so finally she convinces the wizard to take her back home aboard his hot air balloon. But then her dog, Toto, jumps out of the hot air balloon, and Dorothy goes after him, and the hot air balloon takes off without her on it seeming leaving her stranded in this foreign land forever. So all hope it seems lost. It seems hopeless. But then the good witch Glinda appears and tells Dorothy that, oh, actually, all you need to do to get home is to tap your ruby slippers together and repeat, there's no place like home. Never mind the fact that it was earlier in the movie, right? that it was Glinda herself who gave her those slippers. And when Dorothy asked her how to get home, she said, you have to go find the wizard. Like, Glenda could have told Dorothy this heel-clicking trick right off the bat. Instead of all, a whole lot of trouble. Saved me a lot of time from watching this nonsense movie. Like, it would have been all way better. Hit the point. Right? When, when big problems are suddenly resolved in unforeseen or unexpected or unset-up ways, it cheapens the story. And in fact, it's such a, a no-no in film now that it has a name. It's called Deus Ex Machina, which is defined as this. a plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved 
by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. Its function is generally to resolve an otherwise irresolvable plot situation, to surprise the audience, or to bring the tale to a happy ending. And this phrase, Deus ex machina, comes from Latin. And in Latin, it means God from the machine. I got that name because in Greek theater, there would be actors who were playing the Greek gods, and they would be lowered onto the stage from these crane-like machines. And as they appeared on the stage, having been lowered from the crane, they would suddenly resolve all the play's main problems. The deus ex machina was originally used for occurrences when when gods, the Greek gods, would show up on earth to solve humanity's seemingly unsolvable problems. But I find it a bit ironic that the one time in history that God actually does show up on earth to solve mankind's unsolvable problem, the one time that happens, namely when Jesus is born to take away the sins of the world, it isn't an example of deus ex machina. Because one of the key components of the definition of deus ex machina is that it's an unexpected resolution. But as we just sang a minute ago, right? Come thou long expected Jesus. Jesus was not unexpected. God's people had been waiting for the Messiah almost at the beginning of, of human history. And nowhere is that more clear than in the genealogy that starts Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel doesn't just jump right into the story of Jesus. It starts with this long list of names that trace Jesus' family lineage. And that may seem like a, a bit of a strange and, and boring, frankly, way to start someone's life story, but it's there for some important reasons. And one of those important reasons is this. This genealogy shows us that, that God's plan to save sinners started long before the birth of Jesus. Jesus came to, to save sinners. That's why today is a, a big deal on the church calendar. Jesus didn't come first and foremost to just be a good example of how to live for us. He didn't come to teach us some good things about God primarily. He didn't even primarily come to show us what love looks like or to teach us how to self-sacrifice. He came to save sinners. Right after his genealogy in Matthew one twenty one. Matthew recorded a conversation with, between Joseph and the angel Gabriel. This is when Gabriel shows up and he's telling Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. That despite the fact that she had the baby and they're not even married yet, that the baby is from God and that he is to name the baby Jesus. Why? Why Jesus? Because Gabriel says he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't get the name Jesus because he going to be a great teacher. Because he'll be a great moral example. He got the name Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus was born on that first Christmas. And what this genealogy in Matthew shows us is that sending Jesus to save people from their sins was God's plan from the very beginning. That Jesus wasn't plan B. It's not that plan A failed and so Jesus had to come along and fix things. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. In Ephesians 1, we read about how God chose to bless 
Christians with, with every spiritual blessing in Christ and to make them holy and blameless through Christ. And here's the key part. It says, before the foundation of the world. Like before the world was even made, God had chosen that he was going to bless people who believed in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Make them holy and blameless through Jesus before the world was even made. And Matthew's genealogy drives that point home. I'm not going to read through the whole genealogy this morning, name by name, because there's names in there I don't know how to pronounce, and you don't want to hear that. And it's not the most engaging content, right? But, but it's important for us to see that genealogy. I commend you to read it on your own at some point. You can just kind of, in your head, mumble through the names you don't know how to pronounce, right? But it's worth reading, but I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. But instead, what I want to do is look at a couple of key verses, a couple of key names in this genealogy. And then make a few observations about those names. But before we get into the actual official genealogy, verse 1 kind of starts as a, an introduction. And Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right, so this, is, this verse is kind of a, a high-level overview summary of the whole genealogy. Of all of Jesus' ancestors, the two most significant, the two most important, the two worth mentioning again here are, are David and Abraham. I'll take just a few minutes to, to look and think about why each of those figures, David and Abraham, are so important, starting with Abraham. And the very first name that shows up in, Jesus, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is it's Abraham. The question then becomes, why does... Matthew start there. Why with Abraham? Why not with Adam, the first man? Why not with, with Noah? And it's because Abraham represents the moment when God selects and kind of separates for himself a family, separates them from the rest of, of the nations. And he chooses Abraham to be the patriarch of, of his chosen people. This is where God's family, the Israelites, starts. And the crazy thing is that he chose Abraham, even though, as far as we can tell, Abraham had done nothing to deserve it. That Abraham, as far as we can tell, was an idol worshiper. In Joshua 24, Joshua is recounting the history of God's covenant with his people. And he says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Abraham's father worshipped other gods. So presumably Abraham was raised in that household as well. And that, but then, Joshua says, but I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates. So Abraham's living beyond the Euphrates. He's worshipping other gods. And then God shows up and entirely undeservedly chooses him and make him the father of this great nation. It's a picture of God's grace, that Abraham had nothing to deserve it, yet God came to him. God decides he's going to make a family for himself, and he chooses Abraham to be the patriarch of that family. This happens way back in, in Genesis chapter 12. God shows up to Abraham, who called Abram at that point. And in verses 1 through 2 of Genesis chapter 12, God makes... 
some important promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation with many descendants. He promised that he would make Abraham's name great. But then perhaps the most important promise God made, that he promised him that one day, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And what Matthew wants us to see by putting Abraham at the top of this passage, right, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Matthew wants us to see that, that Jesus is the way that the whole world, all the peoples of the world, would be blessed through Abraham. For a long time, it looks like, if you read the Old Testament, it looks like that like God's blessing, God's promise to Abraham is only ever going to extend to Abraham's physical descendant, to the people of Israel. The people of Israel themselves were often unconcerned with, with seeing the rest of the world blessed. They were often very insular and not worried about God's blessings going to others. But then Jesus, Abraham's descendant, arrives on the scene. And he's born and he lives a sinless life and he goes to the cross and he's crucified and he's resurrected all so that anyone who places their faith in Jesus can have their sins forgiven. Anyone who believes in Jesus, the son of Abraham, can be forgiven and therefore blessed by God. And that's how all the blessings of Abraham go out to the whole world. In Galatians 3, Paul puts it this way. Understand then that those who have faith, that is, in Jesus, all who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who believe in Jesus, all who place their faith in Jesus are children of Abraham. They are the fulfillment of this promise God made thousands of years earlier to Abraham. So God made this great promise to Abraham. But for a minute, look at, it seems like that promise is doomed before it even gets started. Because one of the key components of, of God's promise to Abraham was that he would have offspring who would carry on the promise. But when God shows up to Abraham, his, Abraham and his wife Sarah are unable to have children. They're both old. Sarah's beyond childbearing years. And so it seems unlikely that they're ever going to have kids. So how is the promise going to continue? But in Matthew 1, verse 2, we read this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And it's easy, especially when reading a genealogy, which I know is not the most engaging reading, to just like rush through a statement like that. that Abraham was the father of Isaac. It's just six words and in a long genealogy, in a long book like Matthew. And yet there's so much packed into those six words. Last night we watched, part of our Christmas Eve service, we watched like, the chosen depiction of, of the birth of Jesus. Right? What the chosen does so well is that it, it humanizes the people who are in those stories that we read in the Bible. As we watched last night, I was just struck by, by the human emotions that, that Mary and Joseph must have been going through on their journey to Bethlehem and as, as Jesus is being born. Like, 
They're not just words on a page. They were real people who really existed. And there's a human story like that behind all the words of the Bible. Abraham and Sarah were real people, really suffering from being unable to have kids. And you can imagine the huge range of emotions they must have gone through. They must have been devastated when they realized first that they couldn't have children. Then they came to some kind of acceptance, only to have God show up and prompt them that they would have children. Then they waited and waited and waited and waited for God's promise to come true, and they can imagine they would start to have lost hope. But then Sarah does conceive, and they rejoice at the birth of their son, Isaac. What we see in that first line, that the birth of Isaac, is that God keeps their promises. It may take a long time. It may happen in ways we don't expect. It may even require a miraculous birth for it to happen. But God keeps their promises. I find it interesting that right, the, the very first birth represented in Jesus' genealogy, the birth of Isaac, is a miraculous birth. And the very last birth in the genealogy, the birth of Jesus himself, is an even more miraculous birth. I think that's intentional on, on God's behalf to again remind us that Jesus was the plan all along. That God had been planning the birth of his son from the very beginning. That Jesus is the son of Abraham. But not only is he the son of Abraham, he's also the son of, of David. The other name that gets a shout out in, in Matthew 1 1 is, is David. And just as God made a promise to Abraham, God also made an important promise to David. It was this. God said to David, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will rise up, raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. And by mentioning, like we're at the very beginning of, of this genealogy, that Jesus is the son of David, Matthew wanted readers to understand and see that Jesus is the one through whom God is establishing his kingdom forever. Jesus is the one whose kingdom will never end. In Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel shows up to Mary, and he tells her about the son she's going to bear, he tells her this. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Here's the key part. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus as the son of David is the long-awaited king who would sit on Israel's throne forever. Again, Abraham, David, they're all part of God's plan to bring about this Savior for the whole world. So we start with Abraham, we start with David, these high points in Jesus' family tree. 
But then if you read through the whole list, it's worth noting how messy Judith and family tree is. In fact, in talking about the generation that comes after David, Matthew says in the genealogy, he says this, David was the father of Solomon. Could have just stopped right there. But then he doesn't stop there. He said he had this little thing on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And even though like David is one of the key figures in the genealogy, even though David is the greatest king Israel ever had, there's still problems there. The promise that, that David was made to David pressed from David to his son Solomon. But the son Solomon was born to Bathsheba. Bathsheba was David only married Bathsheba after first having her husband killed so that he could marry her. And Matthew could have left that detail out. But the traditional formula for a genealogy would have just been to say, David was the father of Solomon and move on. He could have just skipped over the fact that Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew puts it in there. If Matthew was a good PR man for Jesus, he never would have mentioned that. But he does. I mentioned this story when I preached through Luke's genealogy at the start of our Luke sermon series, but, but it's such a helpful contrast, I think it's worth repeating. So it's this. The actor Ben Affleck once appeared on the PBS show Finding Your Roots, where, where the host does like, genealog- genealogical deep dives on different famous people and public figures. And after that show aired, both PBS and Affleck had to apologize because it was revealed that Affleck pressured the show producer to withhold the fact that one of Affleck's ancestors owned slaves. And the show agreed to not air that fact. It was an embarrassment for, for Ben Affleck to have that kind of sin in his family tree. Like He didn't want to identify with people who would own slaves. He didn't want to identify with that kind of sinner. So he tried to bury the fact that he had that sin in his history. But not so with Jesus. There are some, some truly terrible characters on this list in Matthew. Take, for, take Ahaz, for example. Like, Judah had some bad kings, right? but Ahaz is probably worst. He essentially like, goes through a checklist of all the things you're not supposed to do at the king. And he did them all. Right? He, he offered sacrifices, the Bible tells us, and burned incense at the high places. He engaged in the detestable practice of the nation. He removed an altar part of the temple. He, he chose to offer sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. He set up altar to false gods at every street corner in Jerusalem. He built high places to false gods to burn sacrifices. He encouraged people to follow other gods. He was a bad king, and perhaps the worst thing he did was this. During his reign, Ahab had one of his own sons burned alive at the human sacrifice. And he gets mentioned in the family tree of Jesus. We know Matthew was selectively choosing who 
you put in here. Like, it's not every ancestor of Jesus makes this list. Like, he could have just left Ahaz out. It would have been okay. Don't want to tarnish Jesus with that name. But he didn't. He, he, Jesus identified with sinners. He came to identify with sinful men. He came to be, as the author of Hebrews puts it, tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus is not tarnished by being associated with sinners. Sinners are cleansed by being associated with Jesus. Jesus came for sinners like David. He came for sinners like Ahaz. And he came for sinners like you and me. And all this is possible, not because not only is Jesus the son of David, not only is Jesus the son of Abraham, but Jesus is also the son of God. A couple of chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, we, we get the story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And as Jesus is baptized, and as he's coming out of the water, God speaks from heaven and he says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is not only the son of David, not only the son of Abraham, he is the son of God. The last night's sermon, I I encourage people who are there to, to ponder the birth story of Jesus. And one of the questions I encourage people to ponder was, well, why is the virgin birth significant? Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? One of the reasons that it mattered is that it means that Jesus could truly be God's son, that he could truly be Emmanuel, God with us. That he was both fully man and fully God. And because of that, he could be our representative on the cross. Being fully man, he could take our place on the cross. But also because he was fully God, he could, he could do the thing that we could never do. He could live in perfect obedience to God. Jesus being both the Son of God and the Son of Mary is the only way that the cross could be effective. It allowed him to identify with us, yet not sin. Jesus is the Son of God. Let me just close by, by saying this. If you were to read through this whole genealogy, there's thousands of years represented there. And in those thousands of years, there are a lot of hard times represented. There's a lot of deep sin that takes place in these generations. The whole last section is after the exile of the Babylonic, after the people have lost the land. One of the main components of God's promise to Abraham was that he would have a land, and yet Matthew's genealogy ends with generations of people who lived outside of the land because the land had been lost through their sin. They were living under foreign rulers. There's a lot of hard times represented in this genealogy. Things often seem bleak for God's people throughout history. But what this genealogy shows us is that God was at work through all of it. So for each of us, 
we walk through trials, as we walk through hardship, as we walk through pain and suffering. None of that means that, that God is not at work. None of that means that God is not with us. This genealogy means that God has a great plan for history. There's coming a day when there will be a second advent, a second coming of, of Jesus, and He will set all things right. There will be no more pain and suffering and death. But while we wait for that day, we walk through times that are hard and challenging, just like the Israelites did. And yet because of God's promises to us and God's history of keeping His promises, we can be confident, even in the midst of that suffering, that God did that work to bring about His good purposes. A great purpose, right? Was to, to save each of us. Paul writes this. He says, Here to trustworthy things that deserve full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Each of us can sit here this morning, we can gather together, we can rejoice at Jesus' coming, that even though we're sinners like Paul, even though we're sinners like David, Jesus came to save sinners. He came to to make a way for us to have eternal life with the Father for all time, despite our own sin. Would we, would we rejoice in that fact? Would we rejoice, even as we go through a hard time, that Jesus came to save sinners? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that even though like Paul and David and Ahaz and so many others in, in Jesus' genealogy, that even though we like them are sinners, you sent Jesus to, to save sinners, to die in our place on the cross so that through faith in him we can become children of Abraham and receive your promise. Thank you that you loved us with such a deep love. That even though we were your enemies, even though we were in rebellion against you, even though we, like Abraham, didn't deserve anything, you sent your Son, you came to dwell among us. You showed us grace and mercy when we were utterly undeserving. As we celebrate Christmas, as we see family, as we do all the Christmas things, We not lose sight of all that's represented in the birth of Jesus. We not lose sight of the fact that 
Jesus' birth is proof that you are constantly at work even when things seem hard, even when things seem bleak. You have a plan. You are bringing about your good purposes. We go from here today. What do we go rejoicing in that fact? Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, I do pray that you would go rejoicing in the birth of your Savior. You are dismissed. Merry Christmas.